With Luke, we have not just one, but two accounts of the ascension of Jesus. The first comes here at the end of Luke's first volume, his gospel, and the second comes right at the beginning of volume two, the Acts of the Apostles. And that, I think, is because the ascension of Jesus forms a watershed, marking on the one hand the end of Jesus's visible presence and ministry upon earth, and on the other hand, introducing the continuation of that same presence and ministry through initially the group of followers that he left behind in Jerusalem. Today, I want to focus on this first account at the end of the gospel and draw out from it three important strands that Luke flagged up in the opening chapters of his gospel and which have run like threads in a tapestry throughout the gospel as a whole and here in this final part of the gospel are pulled together again. And Luke shows in doing so that what God has promised in times past now comes to be fulfilled in Jesus. Not only for those disciples who witnessed his ascension, but for contemporary disciples like you and me who also seek to follow Jesus and do the will of God. And the first of these three strands that I want to draw out from the gospel is the strand of worship. It's no coincidence that Luke ends the gospel in the very same place in which he began it, in the temple in Jerusalem. The final words of the gospel tell us that the disciples who saw Jesus carried up into heaven were not sad or crestfallen because they could no longer see him. But rather, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing or praising God. That strand of worship goes back in chapter 1 to the temple and to an elderly priest called Zechariah, who perhaps for the only time in his life happened to be on duty in the temple offering incense prayers in the sanctuary of the Lord. And while he was there, Zechariah encountered the Lord through the archangel Gabriel, who visited him to tell him that his wife Elizabeth, after so many years of barrenness, is now to have a child who will be called John the one we know as John the Baptist. For Luke and the other gospel writers, it isn't so much the place of worship that matters as here with the temple, but what matters is who it is that is being worshipped and how worship is taking place. Although the temple would come to be destroyed some 40 years after these events, as Jesus predicted, the Gospels show how Jesus himself takes the place of the temple, allowing free and unhindered access to the worship of God 
and to receiving forgiveness and deliverance from sins. So, the first disciples are continually in the temple blessing God, perhaps in more ways than one. And they keep the daily times of prayer in the temple too, as Peter and John did, as reported in Acts chapter 3. So what does this say to us? So often, I think, we can put the place of worship above who it is we are worshipping and how we are worshipping. I think that's a particular danger when we worship in a magnificent building such as this one. But even the smallest country chapel or a huge barn of an inner city church can claim preeminence in the hearts and minds of worshippers. But so too, the style or the preferred format of worship can come to take on a significance that may suggest to us that that way, our way, is the only right and proper way in which God may be worshipped. Tom Wright, New Testament theologian and historian, ends his everyone commentary on Luke's gospel with this very simple but very true statement. Worship of the living God, now revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, is at the heart of Luke's vision of the Christian life. I want to ask you this morning if that is the case with you as well. Is worship of the living God, now revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, at the heart of your vision of the Christian life? I'm not talking about, is this place where we worship at the heart of your vision? I'm not asking you whether the way you worship or your preferred style or format of worship is at the heart of your Christian life. I'm simply asking whether worship, worship in all its variety, worship in all its forms, is at the heart of your Christian life. Put it another way. Is for you worship a place of real encounter with God? Is it the kind of experience that enables Zachariah to be struck dumb in the temple? Is it the kind of experience that enables those disciples to go blessing and praising God joyfully? Is worship a place of real encounter with God for you? I hope it is, because the most important aspect of worship isn't about what worship does for us personally or for our own personal journey of faith. But the most important aspect of worship is the way in which it brings together and unites the people of God in common praise and service of God. It's about more than our personal preferences. When we place the experience of worshipping the living God revealed in Jesus above the place, the style, the format of worship, then I believe 
God truly meets with us, then we engage deeply with God, then we encounter God in a new way, and we discover how worship enables and empowers all kinds of other facets of our life together in work and witness, in ministry and mission. So the first strand is worship that runs right through this gospel of, of Luke from beginning to end. What's the second? Well, in our gospel reading, Jesus' final words to his followers begin with the statement that goes like this. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus then opened their minds to understand the scriptures, just as he'd done with the two on the Emmaus Road, to show how the Messiah's suffering, death, and resurrection was set out in scripture, by which, of course, we understand the Old Testament. Jesus then goes on to say, and this is the important bit, Repentance and the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name, the Messiah's name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Again, tracing this thread back from the end of the gospel here to the beginning, we find the line of the Messiah traced back in that early chapter to David in Gabriel's announcement to Mary of the conception and birth of Jesus. And in the song that we call the Benedictus, Zechariah refers to the oath of, that God swore to Abraham to rescue his people from their enemies. And so echoes there of God's great act of deliverance of his people recorded in what we call the Old Testament. So from the record of Scripture... And because of his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus now declares to these gathered disciples, repentance and the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Scripture and what Jesus has done through his suffering, death, and resurrection, the gospel message, if you like, come to define the shape and the nature of of the mission of the new community of believers now being established in Jerusalem. So again, what does this say to us today here in London? Writing in her 2019 Lent book, Jane Williams says this, it is because Jesus suffered and died that his resurrection commissions the disciples to proclaim repentance and forgiveness in his name forevermore. This is good news that takes the stuff of darkness and turns it inside out, making it tell a different story with a new ending. That's great. The problem that we in the church sometimes have with that is that we don't always tell the good news with a different story 
and a new ending. So often it isn't good news that we proclaim, but it's the bad old news of the world. We like to exert power in the way the world does. We feel we want to take revenge rather than show forgiveness. We sometimes seek the punishment of those who have wronged us rather than look for their repentance. Whereas we are tempted to confront darkness with ways of darkness, the model Jesus gives us is to do differently, to tell a different story with a new ending. And that different story with a new ending is described by Jane Williams in the title of her book, The Merciful Humility of God. It's a commitment to that model of being as revealed in Jesus, that the stuff of darkness is turned inside out. It's what Jesus did on the cross through his suffering and death, confronting the darkness and taking the stuff out of it, turning it inside out by love. And through that, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand on high. That's why Jesus said to his followers, you are witnesses of these things. You are to do the same as I have done. You too are to confront the darkness and not go along with its ways, but you are to tell a different story with a new ending. You too are to take the stuff of darkness and turn it inside out just as I did on the cross. How then might we go about doing that? What examples are there for us to follow? Well, I believe we saw one example a few weeks ago in Northern Ireland at the funeral of the journalist Lyra McKee when the priest, Father Martin McGill, spoke truth to power in addressing a congregation with many political leaders present. He received a standing ovation and eventually including the political leaders present as well getting to their feet. It was seen in South Africa some years ago with the end of apartheid, when political and church leaders worked through dialogue and exchange to bring healing and reconciliation to a hurting and divided country where most observers expected retaliation through violence and bloodshed. It's seen wherever Christians and churches refused to get sucked into the darkness, but confront the darkness and take the stuff of darkness and turn it inside out. That is what Jesus calls you and me to witness to in our homes, our workplaces, our communities, our relationships, by our words, deeds, examples, by the way we live out our Christian lives. So are you and I prepared to be those witnesses by our attitudes and values, our actions and words, our example and our lives? Are you and I willing as individuals and church to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all nations in the name of Jesus? Will the record of scripture and the gospel message of what Jesus has done in his suffering, death and resurrection shape and define our lives? and the mission and ministry of our church.
So the first strand is worship. The second strand is scripture and the gospel message. The third strand is the Holy Spirit. Finally, at the very end of Luke's gospel, Jesus told his disciples that he was sending upon them what the Father promised. So he said, stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And he said much the same thing to them in the second account of the ascension in Acts chapter 1, anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, tracing that thread back through the gospel, we find in the opening chapter the Holy Spirit quite prominently displayed. We are told by Gabriel that even before his birth, John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary is told by the angel, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you when she asks how she will conceive and bear a son. Elizabeth and Zachariah, John the Baptist's parents, are also both filled with the Holy Spirit in exclaiming what God has done and what it all means. So Luke, throughout his gospel, lays great store by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not for him some kind of nebulous or ethereal concept of God. Rather, the Holy Spirit is the power and dynamic of God at work in the life and ministry of Jesus and also in the community of believers that Jesus left in Jerusalem. Reading the Acts of the Apostles, some commentators have suggested it should more accurately be entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and they have a point. But there's also a need for believers to work with the Holy Spirit, not leave the Holy Spirit to do everything himself. The Holy Spirit seeks to lead, enable, and empower what God's people are called to do in the life and ministry of the church. This was brought home to me very sharply some years ago now, fairly early on in my ministry here at Central Hall when I was attending an annual conference of UK Christian healing organizations. In the final act of worship, I was given a word of knowledge from God by one of the delegates. That word of God was quite simply this. Peter, let the Holy Spirit direct the healing ministry at Central Hall. Wait a minute. I thought I was doing that already. Clearly, the Holy Spirit thought otherwise. So as this was a word of knowledge from God, I took this word seriously and continued over a period of time to pray about it. Eventually, I came to see that when Alison Bryan, who is now to be my successor, joined the healing team some two to three years ago, God started to lead us as a team into ways of praying for healing that didn't simply focus on what we thought or what we had been asked to pray for, but that it involved a time of waiting on God and allowing ourselves to hear what God was saying about how we should pray for those who had come to us. As a team, we are now working more with this way of praying and often finding that the results are quite surprising and effective. As a result, 
we're learning to depend less on ourselves and to rely more on the Holy Spirit, which was precisely the message that I was given at that conference several years ago. But I don't believe the principle of relying more on the Holy Spirit is confined only to the church's healing ministry. I believe it applies to all our forms of mission and ministry, work and witness in the church. As we approach the day of Pentecost, would you, like those Jerusalem disciples, actively wait for the power from on high? But more than that, will you actively seek the Holy Spirit to allow a greater sense of direction and power in the way you exercise your own particular ministry here in this place. For I believe that's what God desires for all of us here. So will you also pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. So then, beginnings turn into endings, and endings herald new beginnings. We've looked at three important strands in Luke that go right through his gospel from beginning to end or from ending to beginning. Questions and challenges that in those three strands speak to a church in first century Jerusalem, but also a church in 21st century London too. The first strand of worship challenges us at the very heart of our church's life. Asking, do we allow our worship to provide the dynamic for the life, mission, and ministry of the church? Is worship our true place of encounter with God for us as church? The second strand of scripture challenges the foundation of our faith. It asks whether we as church allow the record of scripture and the gospel message of the suffering death and resurrection of Jesus to shape and define our lives and the ministry and mission of our church? Will we be prepared in our lives to take the stuff of darkness and turn it inside out? Will we seek to tell a different story with a new ending? And thirdly, the strand of the Holy Spirit challenges the dynamic of our church, asking, that as we wait for the day of Pentecost and the power from on high, will we rely more on the Holy Spirit and less on ourselves? Will we wait on God for what God wants to do among us all? In this year, when the lectionary has turned our attention particularly upon Luke, may these three significant strands of the gospel give to us and our church guidance, direction, impetus, and power for where God is wanting to take us in the days that lie ahead. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray.